Hello, I'm Richard Bronze, and I'm joined by Varendra Chohan, Head of Global Upstream, and Jesse Jones, Head of North American Upstream, to discuss the outlook for oil and gas production in 2022. With balances tightening and prices on the rise, the market's closely tracking the supply recovery and whether it's going to be able to keep pace with demand. And so I really want to just sort of get straight into it and start with you, Varendra, too outline what you're seeing as the big themes for next year for upstream and for producers globally. Yeah, so um, the first thing I, that I think is worthy of um, mention is the kind of differentiation between the trends in crude oil uh, production and gas production, both in the sh shorter term, but also over the medium term. I think what our detailed upstream modelling has shown is that there is scope and continued expansion for growth in global gas supplies, but the same cannot be said for crude supplies, at least on a kind of global basis. So there's pockets of growth, and we know where a lot of that kind of um, sits. Uh, there, there's certain countries, and we'll go into um, each of the kind of key moving um, countries in particular, the US, um, I think Russia is important, and then your own area of expertise, Richard, uh, OPEC plus. Thanks very much. And um, as you say, before we kind of go into those, what are the what are the drivers then for the limits on uh, short and medium term oil production growth um, outside of the pockets where it can happen? What's what's the constraint? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, everything boils down to um, uh, spending. We've seen, you know, from the depths of 2020, we've um, obviously had a very, very strong year as far as pricing is concerned. Uh, but there wasn't really a response in terms of investment from the producers. And there's different dynamics playing out in different parts of the world. There is a general focus on returns over and value over volume. Um, of course, this is a kind of theme which has been um, emanating for a far few years now, but since COVID and since COP26 and various other ESG mandates, this trend has really, really accelerated. And so there's no producer that's really willing to accelerate spending at the moment. And the upshot of this in an industry where declines never sleep, oil prices can rise, oil prices can fall. And all that happens is um, the, the pace of decline will gyrate along with activity levels. Now, from what we see, activity levels globally remain depressed relative to um, uh, pre-COVID levels. And the implication for that is going to be in, um, you know, lower supply both um, or muted supply growth, um, even in a higher oil price environment. And you mentioned ESG mandates kind of within that. How, how are they affecting the willingness to invest by the kind of different types of companies, but also where they're putting their, their upstream spending or their capex? Yeah, so if you look at the Western headquartered IOCs where this kind of um, mandate is the strongest, I think that the signal is very, very clear. They're saying there's no um, future for oil and gas in 20 years. The value of these assets is going to be worth zero. So why don't you start shifting your business model towards renewables and towards um, other 
kind of sustainable green or low carbon source of energy. And the implication for that is if we we did analysis for the international oil, or maybe I should call them international energy companies. So that's your the likes of Exxon, Chevron, Conoco, Shell, Total, ENI, and BP, of course. Um, all of them, you know, are looking to divert incremental capex towards, um, you know, solar, wind, and that's the, the strongest mandate is in Europe. And so what you're seeing with a lot of these companies is that they are actually seeing production kind of declining away over the medium term. And yeah, and that's, you know, it seems regardless of where oil prices are. Um, or where gas prices are, they're willing to make that shift. Um, and I guess that reflects a, a pressure from investors and a, a much bigger picture now. Kind of the NOCs, uh, you know, who who kind of cover a lot of the OPEC countries that I look most closely at, they're, they're not telling quite the same story yet, are they? No. So, I mean, over the medium term, and this is more a kind of medium term thematic story, um, is uh, we've got international energy companies raising, you know, um, the spending towards green capex towards 25% of the co- total amount they invest in the global upstream. Now, when you look at similar numbers for the NOCs, um, it's a lot, lot lower. Uh, obviously, the mandates are um, not as stringent. Uh, a lot of these um, uh, countries are still very much dependent on um, oil revenues, gas revenues to run their countries, their governments. uh, And so they cannot just walk away from these assets in the same way as international oil companies might. And obviously this has implications for the kind of um, outlook for um, uh, global supply in the sense that ultimately if um, IOCs are moving away from these assets, these assets we don't believe are going to be stranded, they'll be picked up and um, by other operators and what will happen is that you'll put more and more pricing power and more and more dependence or reliance on OPEC over medium term. Now, of course, over the course of 2022, you have these various OPEC plus um, kind of supply and you can maybe go into a little bit around the spare capacity and what actual spare capacity levels are. Um, but the, the mandate is very, very clear. I think um, in an era where US production is not growing by a million barrels per day and filling any gap um, from other non-OPEC producers or OPEC producers for that matter, um, this becomes significant both in terms of price and also keeping um, balances in, in check. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and certainly the OPEC plus agreement and the quotas uh, gradually rising under this as that deal unwinds um, is is leaving more space for the producers that can to raise their output um, and that will continue next year but it's also exposing those countries which no longer have the capacity to get back to the the pre uh, pre-OPEC plus deal baselines and interestingly I think quite a few of those countries are the ones where it is uh, international energy companies that have been developing the assets, so your West African producers like Nigeria and uh, Angola, it's the big companies and it's the ones who, as you said, um, appear to be making a shift in their portfolios and their investment, um, as well as we know there's you know, high underlying decline rates on those assets, um, whereas some of the, the Gulf states where it is 
predominantly national oil companies, they have uh, still got capacity. So, so those dynamics are, I think, interesting even within the OPEC countries. But I want to bring Jesse you in at this point because, um, as Rendra mentioned, one of the pockets of growth we're expecting to see again next year is um, the US, and obviously the kind of extent of the shale patch recovery is absolutely critical to global balances and and the oil cycle now. But how much are you seeing the trends? Uh, that we've been discussing globally playing out in the US or and what's different uh, for your for your neck of the woods? Sure. So for a few years it it seemed like the the massive unconventional drilling inventories and short cycle times would make US tight oil the global swing producer, but that was always a bit of a mirage. And the outlook that we have for 2022 shows how North American producers are really still price takers. So we can start with the Permian. So Permian production is just about back to its all-time peak um, and should even reach about 5 million barrels a day in 2022. But there is some weakness below those top-line numbers. So uh, overall, U.S. production is still almost a million and a half barrels a day short of its peak from two years ago, in part because the Bakken and the Eagleford volumes are both down about 25% over that time. Um, the independent producers that drove the, the breakneck growth in tide oil over the last few years, they've really committed to capital discipline, and they see no incentive to change that yet. Um, the CapEx to revenue ratio for the large caps in the U.S. Uh, hit an all-time low of about 18% last quarter, and the group is consistently guided to uh, flat or, or single-digit production growth. So that leaves the burden of growing production to the private operators that have been the quickest to resume activity. Um, Pre-pandemic, public independents and private operators each controlled about 40% of the onshore rig fleet, uh, with the majors making up the other 20%. But right now, those private producers are running more horizontal rigs than the independents and the majors combined, about two-thirds of onshore activity. And that matters because it's the large independents that have traditionally been the most efficient operators. So leaner than the majors, but with an economy of scale and quality of acreage that the private operators can't match. And the individual well data backs that up. As Permian wells drilled by private operators over the last two years, produced about 25% less oil on average than wells drilled by the independents. Um, and since those private operators were the most active over the last couple of quarters, they also have to deal with a larger proportion of wells and their rapid uh, initial decline stage next year. So that means the consistent 50,000 barrel a day, month on month gains we've seen in the Permian over the last couple of quarters are going to be really difficult to keep going, uh, especially since we know that there's very few high spec rigs available to contract. So adding less capable rigs and crews means that any incremental capital deployed to the basin will, will just be less efficient. Uh, and those smaller private companies with the appetite to grow production, they're also the most likely to be cut out if the, the current cost inflation we see on uh, steel tubulars and manufactured equipment turn into outright shortages next year. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Go ahead, B. Yeah, no, I think that was a very, very comprehensive overview of uh, the onshore unconventional basins, but there's also a couple of um, big projects um, due to come on in uh, the Gulf of Mexico. And I think um, 
they are, uh, you know, there's namely Mad Dog uh, Phase 2 and also Vito, uh, mm -hmm. both over 100,000 barrels per day in capacity. So large capacity expansions there. And I think the, un uh, con the conventional uh, offshore production is quite significant in the sense that a lot of the international energy companies um, are present and they continue to invest in conventional onshore because these are very high margin high margin barrels and so you know if they're looking to divert additional capital to um tr you know transition themes then you know a lot of the um a lot of the cash for that comes from these these barrels so i think that's another important component of um kind of us production which is probably not spoken about so much anymore yeah, we do have about 10% uh, production growth from the Gulf of Mexico next year from those two large projects you mentioned and, and some of the other uh, tiebacks that have been delayed as well. Um, and then Canada um, as well is going to grow a little bit next year, mostly through kind of smaller efficiency projects and debottlenecking rather than uh, major projects. But oil sands will probably hit a record production next year as well. Hmm. And, and on that Canadian production, is there enough pipeline takeaway capacity or does that uh, get into some midstream challenges? Well, with, uh, with new pipelines coming on, um, we, we think there's plenty of uh, pipeline capacity for, the, for crude oil next year out of Canada. And just taking you back, you talked about the large independents having historically been the big drivers of the most efficient uh, growth in the shale patch, but not at present. Uh, deploying a lot of capital. Do you feel like there's a, a price level or some other driver that might persuade them uh, to to start uh, spending more heavily or, or what's the outlook there? Yeah, I don't think it's a necessarily a price level. I think it is, uh, it, it really is going to depend on um, operators that are growing production being rewarded in the marketplace by investors because right now, um, any company that uh, talks about higher capex or more production growth is is not being rewarded in the in the marketplace, and that's and that's probably a reality for for so many of the you know the producers is they're not just looking as we might be primarily at the fundamentals of supply and demand and the price they're receiving for production. They're looking at the uh, their investors and the equity markets and the signals that they're receiving from there. Maybe we could uh, zoom out again and we just cover a few, a couple of the other big uh, source of production that perhaps are a little less concerned um, about equity market and investors. So I'm thinking of Russia and then Saudi Arabia, although even there you have got um, you know, minority shareholders of some of the big producers these days. But you mentioned Russia was a really key country to watch next year. So what are we anticipating and what's worth looking out for? Yeah, no, Russia is interesting, um, particularly because relative to the key agencies, um, we are far less uh, bullish on the outlook. So um, we're forecasting half a million barrels per day of supply growth from uh, Russia next year. But if you look at some of the key agency forecasts, they've got it close to a million barrels per day. And again, 
I think this is um, it ties back to that kind of spare capacity argument and um, you know um, the ability to bring supply on at the flick of a switch. Um, there's very very few countries in the world that can actually um, do that at least on a sustained basis, and um, we don't think that Russia is one of those, and that's simply because of the complexity of its uh, reservoirs for, relative to say onshore conventional basins in the Middle East, but also because there's large seasonality in their production and Western Siberia, which still makes up a large percentage of Russian oil production still um, suffers from um, steep decline rates. And therefore, um, you know, you really need price incentives and tax incentives to accelerate drilling. And that doesn't seem to have been forthcoming as of yet. So that's not to say that um, Russia can't grow, but we we think that the market is overly optimistic on um, the volumes that Russia could bring to the market. And that's quite significant given it's a, um, a large supplier to uh, key demand centers such as China. Absolutely. And as you say, it's one of those the big difference is when you look at our supply forecast versus um, a lot of the, the key agencies. Um, Saudi Arabia, you know, we do think it has that favorable geology uh, in terms of onshore and conventional reservoirs. But even there, as they push their production towards the 11 million barrels a day, that's going to be allowed late next year under the, um, under the OPEC plus agreement, they are going to be going right up to um, you know, they're going to be producing, we think, on average, a higher level than they've ever done historically next year. And they're going to be using almost all of the spare capacity they have available because, um, you know, we don't quite buy that 12 and a half million barrel a day official claim. We think the reality is lower than that. So even if they can take product, crude production all the way to 11, that leaves us with an incredibly thin buffer of spare capacity. And whether that becomes totally apparent next year or whether that's a 2023 story I think it is going to be a really significant one given those trends you both discussed about the limited investment in production growth and capacity around the world. So uh, we've covered a lot of uh, different topics today and we're running a bit short on time now so maybe just to bring it all together Varenja you can just tell us what what our view is for global supply growth next year, given all these different factors. Yeah, so I think the market will be keenly watching the rate at which um, OPEC can increase supply. Um, there, I think a lot of people, in particular, the most um, closely watched key agency in this respect, because it um, informs OPEC decision, is that is the um, OPEC secretariat, and they're assuming 400 kbd of growth every month. Our forecasts are a lot le- a lot lower than that, and we uh, we think that you know OPEC crude supplies are only going to in- increase by two million barrels per day uh, on a annual average basis over the course of next year. Um, Of course, there's large um, uncertainties around the pace at which um, US um, supply can grow. And then we've already discussed Russia. So I think they're the kind of three moving parts um, that are worth watching in over the course of um, next year. Great. Well, thank you very much, B. Thank you, Jesse. It's been really good chatting with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.